Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Today we want to return to the subject of civil asset forfeiture, which is the peculiar legal procedure that allows the police to take property away from people. I say peculiar because one of the first things that you discover when you start reading this area of the law is the weird case names that arise in this area. Instead of cases like, you know, United States versus Smith or State of New York versus Anderson, you find case names like United States versus Chevrolet Corvette or United States versus single family residence at 900 Vista Boulevard. And there's even cases against currency. Uh, I, call, I caught a case yesterday called United States versus $9,000 in U.S. currency. So there's these bizarre names, and you have to – what I want to do is take a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for the discussion that's going to follow to kind of get you into the framework of this weird area of the law called civil forfeiture. You see, unlike criminal forfeiture, where property is seized by the government after somebody has been convicted of a crime – uh, in civil forfeiture proceedings, the government can seize the property without ever having to convict a person or even ever, without having to uh, arrest a person. Now, the forfeiture laws vary among the 50 states, but generally speaking, the proceeding in the eyes of the law is against the property itself, uh, not against a particular person. That's why the property is actually named in the lawsuit. And because the proceeding is against the property, the constitutional rights of property owners do not come into play in these proceedings because it's not considered a criminal action. So when a seizure happens, property owners are put in the position of having to go to court to show that the seizure is improper for some reason. So as a a practical matter and in some jurisdictions as a legal matter, the burden of proof shifts from the government to the property owner. They have to go into court after the seizure to persuade a judge that this is wrong, this is improper for some reason. Now, during the 1990s, there were cases where the innocence of some property owners was not even in dispute, but the government still insisted that it could take the property. One case reached the Supreme Court in 1995. This was the case of Bennis versus Michigan. Now, Tina Bennis, you may recall this case, was the poor lady who discovered that her, her husband had taken the family car out one night shopping for prostitutes. And when a co- cop caught uh, the husband and the prostitute doing their thing in the car, uh, he was arrested, and then the car was towed down to the police station because the police said it facilitated the crime, which, in a sense, um, it did. Mrs. Bennis then went to court with the argument that the car did not belong solely to her husband. As the car was registered, not just in his name, but in her name as well. So her argument was is that she retained a 50% interest in the ownership of that vehicle, so she knew she didn't do anything wrong, so that either the car should be returned to her, or at the very least, 50% of the value of the car in cash should be returned to her. But the state of Michigan said no. They had the power to seize the property, even though they admitted she had done nothing wrong. And what was even more surprising is that the Supreme Court ruled in in Michigan's favor. Now, to highlight the unjust practices that have risen in the law of forfeiture, instances like the Bennis case, we at the Cato Institute published this book uh, several years ago uh, called Forfeiting Our Property Rights uh, with the late Representative Henry Hyde. And our vice president, uh, Roger Pollan, worked with Mr. Hyde um, 
to put more safeguards in place for innocent property owners. And uh, the results of those actions uh, came with the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act of 2000, which, again, kind of put changed federal law to put additional safeguards in place for innocent property owners. But that reform package only changed certain aspects of federal law. Forfeitures continued to take place at the state and local level. And last month, the Institute for Justice put out this report called Policing for Profit, which is a comprehensive analysis of the forfeiture laws of the 50 states. Um, it's the most comprehensive national study and the f- first report to grade uh, the forfeiture laws of all the 50 states and the federal government. And the findings in this report are, are truly abysmal. Many of the states get a, a grade of D or less. And that's raising, because the, the results and the findings are so bad, it's, it's getting the attention of people from all across uh, the political spectrums. And we're happy to uh, have the authors here uh, to share their findings with us. Our program today is going to begin with the authors of the report. They are going to give us uh, their findings and explain what needs to be done to correct uh, civil asset forfeiture. And then we're going to turn to our, our other guest speaker, Mr. Scott Burns of the National District Attorneys Association, to give us the benefit of, of hearing his perspective. Before I introduce the first speaker, I would ask those of you who came with cell phones, would you please take a moment now to just double-check and make sure that they are turned off as a courtesy to our panelists. Thank you. Our first speaker today is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, which is the premier public interest uh, law firm. Although he has litigated a variety of constitutional issues, his Current work focuses on the proper, on property rights in both the federal and state courts. He argued the landmark case before the Supreme Court in 2005 called Kelo versus City of New London. Uh, that is the lawsuit uh, where eminent domain was being used for pur- purposes of private development. The City of New London, remember, wanted to take Miss Kelo's house and land and allow a private developer to expand their operations. Uh, when the Supreme Court ruled against Mrs. Kelo, the Institute for Justice did not stop there and just say, well, we lost the case. They instituted a grassroots campaign around the country to draw more attention to the state of eminent domain law and to get reforms enacted at the state and local level to stop uh, eminent domain abuse. Um, He's not only files briefs in the courts, he's also published uh, articles in this country's top newspapers, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So would you please welcome our first speaker, Mr. Scott Bullock. Thank you, Tim. It's always a pleasure to be back at at the Cato Institute. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about uh, the uh, bizarre world of civil asset forfeiture a process that threatens the property rights of all Americans. As we set forth in our report, civil forfeiture laws really create a trifecta of circumstances that place property rights at risk. Let me just briefly touch on on those those legal uh, uh, effects of the law. One is that, as Tim mentioned in his introduction, Civil forfeiture is a civil proceeding, and the burdens of proof are civil in nature. So under the law in most states, the state need only show that a piece of property can be forfeited by the preponderance of evidence standard, 
the civil standard of proof, which of course is much lower than the criminal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. In some states, it is even lower than the preponderance of evidence standard. Secondly, under the law in most states, the burden is on property owners to try to get their property back, to try to prove their innocence. And that really turns a fundamental principle of American justice on its head. Individuals under our system are supposed to be innocent until they are proven guilty. Under civil forfeiture law, your property is guilty until you prove it innocent. Uh, The standard is only switched in the law of six states. So you have a much lower standard of proof for the government. The burden is on property owners to try to get their property back. But perhaps most disturbing about civil forfeiture laws at both the federal level and in the laws of 42 states is that police and prosecutors are allowed to keep most or all of the property and proceeds that they forfeit, giving them a direct financial incentive to engage in civil forfeiture. In some states, like Texas and Arizona, forfeiture proceeds can even be used to pay the salaries of law enforcement officials. So this perverse incentive structure makes it so that the more property law enforcement officials seize and forfeit, the nicer their offices, the better their equipment, and in some states, as I mentioned, even higher, uh, even larger their personal paychecks. Now, given these circumstances, it should not be surprising, as Tim alluded to, that the results of our study are not encouraging for private property owners. Only three states in our 50-state survey received a B or higher, and 35 states received a D or F for their laws alone. I want to talk just very briefly about civil forfeiture, because when you first start talking um, about the history of civil forfeiture, because when you first start talking about civil forfeiture, people think, well, how do we get to this point? How is this possible? How did the government uh, be able to take people's property, even if that person is not convicted of a crime? And that's what civil forfeiture is. The government can take your property if you, even if you are not convicted of a crime, and in, in several instances, even if you were not charged with a crime, making it very different from criminal forfeiture, which is tied to a criminal conviction in a court of law. I want to talk briefly about the history of it because I think it proves Jefferson's maxim right that the natural progress of things is for government to grow and for liberty to yield. And it also, I think, contains some uh, important lessons about how Washington and the media operates uh, as well. So just really briefly, uh, in in summary of of the history of civil forfeiture. Civil forfeiture has been around for a long time. Uh, As a matter of fact, some of the first laws passed by the new Congress concerned civil forfeiture. And early American forfeiture laws were modeled on the British Navigation Acts of the 1600s. And what the problem, the problem that was faced by the British government, also by the early American government, was how do you get jurisdiction over people that might violate, in most instances, customs laws? 
The federal government, long before the income tax and massive deficit spending, was largely financed by customs and excise taxes on goods. Ninety percent of the federal government's revenue came from that. The person who might have evaded the taxes or not be paying them were out on the high seas or in another country. So it was hard for the government to get personal jurisdiction over that person. So the courts recognized a, and, and Congress in the early laws recognized an exception to the typical notion that you have to sue an individual, and they permitted the government to go after property itself. And the U.S. Supreme Court upheld these early forfeiture statutes. But it's important to remember the reason why they did so. The Supreme Court said that these forfeiture laws arose from the necessity of the case. The fact that it was it's very hard, if not impossible, to get jurisdiction over the person, so the court said, we are going to recognize this limited exception to allow the government to go after untaxed goods and to confiscate the property of, of individuals. And that is, was really the origins of American civil forfeiture law, but it was confined to uh, maritime type of situations. Now, civil forfeiture law was expanded briefly during the exigencies of the Civil War, but for most of the 19th century and most of the 20th century, it remained a relative backwater in American law, with one exception. It was used rather extensively to go after automobiles and other vehicles during Prohibition uh, to seize the um, illegal liquor that was being transported throughout the country. Modern civil forfeiture laws expanded greatly, however, when the government stepped up the war on drugs. No longer tied to the practical necessities of enforcing maritime law, civil forfeiture has now become one of the most powerful weapons in the government's crime-fighting arsenal. And a seismic shift happened about 25 years ago in forfeiture law, both at the federal level and at the state level. Before the passage of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, forfeiture revenue went to the general revenue account of the government. However, in these amendments to uh, the Drug Prevention Act and Co uh, Crime Control Acts in the mid-1980s, the Department of Justice established the Assets Forfeiture Fund. And under these amendments, forfeiture proceeds were permitted to go back to the very agencies and officials that were out there enforcing the law. And police and prosecutors were allowed to use forfeiture proceeds under the broad rubric of law enforcement purposes. It did not go to the general revenue account of the state. It went back to law enforcement agencies. Not surprisingly, after this change was made, forfeiture use exploded. In 1986, two years after the creation of this fund, the fund took in $93.7 million in revenue. In, in 2008, the Assets Forfeiture Fund at the uh, Department of Justice had over a billion dollars, and that is a net proceeds uh, for it. Now, as Tim mentioned, forfeiture got some attention in the 1990s. 
uh, Cato did uh, yeoman's work on uh, this issue. Uh, there was a number of media reports that uh, documented the abuse of civil forfeiture laws. People from across the political spectrum came together. The uh, Civil Forfeiture Reform Act that Tim mentioned was co-sponsored by Henry Hyde and John Conyers and James Sensenbrenner and Barney Frank. And folks came together to change the law. And in 2000, federal law was changed to provide important procedural protections for property owners. For instance, the cost bond requirement that was under federal law where you had to post a certain amount of money even before you could challenge civil forfeiture was eliminated. there were certain um, instances where indigent defendants were able to receive counsel uh, if they faced civil forfeiture law under under certain circumstances. Because again, because this is civil proceedings, the protections usually afforded to criminal defendants do not apply. CAFRA made it so that uh, indigent defendants could, under certain circumstances, receive counsel. However, the one thing that CAFRA did not do is it did not change in any way the financial incentive structure under federal forfeiture law. And CAFRA, of course, did not change in any way state forfeiture law. And the states proceeded along uh, with their forfeiture programs unabated by the passage of of CAFRA. So really, if you look at the numbers and the conduct of law enforcement agencies at both the federal level and the state uh, level, forfeiture really continued to grow throughout the 2000s, even with the passage of uh, certainly important federal legislation, but legislation that did not go nearly far enough. And one of the things we learned at the state level as well is that if the money is taken away from law enforcement agencies, that is the one thing that they will fight tenaciously. In Utah, for instance, in 2000, citizens overwhelmingly passed a forfeiture reform ordinance that changed the law and made it so that any forfeiture revenue had to go to the school fund of the state. Police and prosecutors, after the passage of this initiative, lobbied the legislature very extensively, and in 2004, the legislature overturned the initiative to make sure that money went back to law enforcement agencies and officials. Not surprisingly, a substantial number of law enforcement agencies are now dependent upon civil forfeiture proceeds and see forfeiture as a necessary source of income. In a survey of more than 1,400 law enforcement executives, nearly 40% of police agencies reported that civil forfeiture proceeds were a necessary budget supplement. Now, this profit incentive under federal law and under the law of most states has led to, even today, a number of abuses where law enforcement officials uh, really uh, try to expand and inflate the definition of law enforcement. So you have DAs, for instance, that use forfeiture revenue to buy football tickets, to go to law enforcement conventions, to pay for re-election ads. In 2005, a prosecutor in Texas even used uh, forfeiture funds to buy a margarita machine uh, for their office that then went on to win a competition at the local county fair. Now, those instances are problematic and they're uh, uh, certainly uh, subject to rightful ridicule. 
But the problem is much deeper than that. And it's not a problem of just a couple of, 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 of bad prosecutors or bad police officers. That's not the problem. The problem is with the incentive structure itself. If you give people the wrong incentives, it's not surprising that they are going to act upon those incentives. People respond to incentives. Every economist will tell you uh, that. And that is really the fundamental problem of forfeiture law, is it provides this perverse incentive uh, system to, uh, to try to capture as much property and proceeds as possible. Under the 1980, uh, 19, early, uh, mid-1980s amendments, uh, there was also a system that was created known as equitable sharing. And Professor Williams is going to talk a little bit uh, more about the findings of our study with regards to equitable sharing. But I just want to touch on it briefly to show the extent to which state and local officials will try to hold on to forfeiture proceeds. Under equitable sharing arrangements, state and local officials can hand off a forfeiture to the federal government. And then the federal government, is, if, it, if the forfeiture violates federal law, can then prosecute that forfeiture action. And under these 1980s amendments, 20% of the forfeiture revenue is kept by the federal government, and 80% is given back to state and local law enforcement agencies. Up to 80% is given back. And this is really essentially an end run around state and local laws that might provide greater protections for property owners or that do not have the profit incentive. There was uh, several cases in Missouri where, which does not have um, uh, a profit incentive, and police and prosecutors worked very vigorously to, um, uh, on, uh, with the federal government to try to make an end run around uh, the state forfeiture uh, laws. California, which has relatively protective Forfeiture laws at, at the state level works very extensively with the federal government. The California legislature in 2000 passed a law to end equitable sharing arrangements with the federal government. That law was vetoed under heavy lobbying uh, by the law enforcement community by then-Governor Gray Davis, and California to this day continues to extensively use equitable sharing. Well, what should be done about these laws, and I'm going to conclude uh, with this. Well, at a minimum, civil forfeiture laws should impose a high burden on the government. Government should at least be able to uh, meet a clear and convincing standard, not a preponderance of the evidence standard that is typically used in civil uh, disputes. Also, property owners should not try, have to prove their innocence in court. The burden should not be on property owners to try to show their innocence. And even if a state law has an innocent owner defense, it is quite burdensome. Uh, we have a case in Texas right now where the property owner uh, has to show not only that he did not know that his property was used illegally, but that he should not have known that his property was going to be used illegally, almost requiring property owners to foresee the future uh, in that, like in the movie uh, uh, Minority Report, as to how the property might be used uh, illegally. Also, government agencies should be required to 
report how much money they're taking in under civil forfeiture and where the money is going. One of the things that we found uh, in our report is that there's not great data uh, about this. In many states, uh, they're not required to track civil forfeiture. Uh, and in several states, even where they are required to track civil forfeiture proceeds, the numbers are uh, not uh, very well put together, and we had difficulty trying to get the data from the various law enforcement agencies. So at a minimum, there should be transparency and accountability in civil forfeiture so that citizens know where the money uh, is going and how the money is being spent. And perhaps most importantly, the direct profit incentive under civil forfeiture law at the federal level and at, uh, in, under the law of most states should end. Civil forfeiture revenue should go to a neutral fund like education or drug treatment or most desirably to the general revenue account of the state so that elected officials can then decide how that money is best going to be spent. Moreover, federalism principles should be respected by ending equitable sharing arrangements. If a state has decided that they want to provide strong protections for property owners, that they do not want to basically pay police and prosecutors on commission, the state and local officials should not be able to do an end run around these procedures by working with the federal government. Ideally, however, civil forfeiture should be abolished. We are a nation that respects private property rights. One of the foundations of America is the protection of private property rights. And no citizen in this country should lose their property without being convicted of a crime. Thank you. Okay, uh, our next speaker is Dr. Marion Williams. Uh, since 2008, Dr. Williams has served as an assistant professor in the Department of Government and Justice Studies at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. Before that, she held a teaching post at Bowling Green State University. Uh, in addition to this forfeiture study published uh, by the Institute for Justice, Dr. Williams has co-authored two books, and she's widely published in the scholarly journals in the criminal justice field. Her primary research interests include the application of the death penalty and the impact of race, gender, and class on court processes. She earned both her master's and Ph.D. in criminology and criminal justice from Florida State University. Would you please welcome Dr. Marion Williams. Thank you very much. First, I would like to thank the Cato Institute for sponsoring this forum. I'd also like to thank audience members for participating as well, and the panel, Scott, Scott, Tim, and my co-authors, first Jefferson Holcomb, who is in the audience with me, Tom Kavanzik, who isn't here, and of course, Scott. Um, several years ago, the Institute for Justice contacted me about participating in an empirical study about the use of asset forfeiture. Uh, Several years prior to that, I had published a piece that examined state statutes, federal statutes, and the extent to which forfeiture proceeds went to law enforcement agencies. And essentially, that was just a baseline research study that just kind of, basically it tried to say, hey, where is the money going with regard to asset forfeiture, in particular civil asset forfeiture? And so when the Institute for Justice contacted me and was interested in doing an empirical study on asset forfeiture, I said, why not? 
Sounds interesting. And so when I brought Jeff and Tom on board and we started getting involved in um, this particular piece, we realized that there were two issues that we needed to address. One of which is one that Scott has already mentioned, is that there is very little empirical research on asset forfeiture. And a lot of the information we have about asset forfeiture is anecdotal evidence. When we have stories from victims of asset forfeiture, when we have stories that have been conducted or that have come up through media reports or investigative journalism reports, um, and also discussions with law enforcement officers in our own classes uh, at Appalachian State and at Bowling Green, when we talk to our students and the police officers in our in our audience are saying, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. Um, but when it comes comes to empirical data, there isn't really that much. And the reason for that, as I mentioned, is because there's, excuse me, as Scott mentioned, is that there is simply not a lot of data. States aren't necessarily required to report their asset forfeiture data. Uh, I'm sure they collect it in some way, shape, or form, but it's not public data. Um, and as Scott mentioned in the report, requests to the states to provide this data were unheeded by a number of states, and so as a result, we can't do a lot of empirical research on data that we don't have. And so one of the things that we had to find was, you know, how can we conduct an empirical study on data we don't have? Okay. So essentially what we found was that our best gauge of asset forfeiture was the use of the equitable sharing data that was compiled by the Department of Justice. Okay, um, On the DOJ's website in various reports from the DOJ, we can see how much money is returned to states through the equitable sharing program. And Scott's already mentioned exactly what the equitable sharing program is. But one of the things I do want to mention is that on the DOJ's website about equitable sharing, is that the DOJ's policy about equitable sharing is that the money that is returned to states must be used for law enforcement purposes. Okay? I want to read the quote to you in their policy manual. Department of Justice policy requires shared monies and properties to be used for law enforcement purposes. Sharing will be withheld from any state or local law enforcement agency where state or local law, regulation, or policy requires federal federal equitable sharing funds to be transferred to non-law enforcement agencies or expended for non-law enforcement purposes. So right there you can kind of see that there is an incentive to engage in equitable sharing by the states. Okay. So when we decided to gauge the extent to which the states would uh, receive proceeds from the equitable sharing practices, we decided to gauge the states on the restrictiveness of their laws with regard to equitable sharing and, or excuse me, the proceeds um, from asset forfeiture. In that, we designated three variables that we felt were most important to, to gauge that relationship. The first variable is the standard of proof that the government is required to meet in order to forfeit someone's assets. The standard of proof ranges in the states from the lowest level of probable cause all the way up to beyond a reasonable doubt. Most states, as Scott has said, use a preponderance of the evidence standard. So does the federal government. Okay. 
The second variable that we touched on was the innocent owner burden. The innocent owner burden deals with the um, which party has to prove the innocence of the owner. If the government has to take steps to prove the, uh, the innocence of the owner or if the owner has to take steps to prove his own innocence. The third variable we examined was the percentage of proceeds that actually go to law enforcement. And state and federal laws do in fact spec uh, specify what percentage goes where. This percentage can go to law enforcement purposes. This percentage can go to the general fund. This percentage can go to schools or drug e uh, education or whatever. Okay. And so based on those, uh, based on those variables, we were able to examine what is really the relationship between these particular variables. If there is a higher standard of proof for the government, if the government is, uh, is responsible for proving the innocence of the owner, if there is a, uh, you know, the lower proceeds that actually go to law enforcement or higher proceeds that go to law enforcement, what is the extent to which these variables affect the amount of monies that are returned to states through through equitable sharing. And what we found is when, and actually I should say, we controlled for other variables as well to take into account what could possibly affect these equitable sharing numbers. And in the end, we found that states that are... Um, more restrictive, states that are more restrictive in their state laws, meaning that it is more difficult for the government to process forfeitures. In those states, law enforcement agencies um, take in more equitable sharing proceeds from the federal government than states that have least restrictive, have the least restrictive laws. So in essence, if there is a higher standard of proof that the government has to meet, you will see law enforcement agencies typically in these states um, taking in more equitable sharing sharing proceeds, combined with um, the government having to prove the owner is innocent, these individual states will take in more equitable sharing proceeds. Essentially, these states are saying that it's easier for us to process a lot of our forfeitures through the federal government because our states restrict the amount of proceeds we can receive through equitable sharing. Okay. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Mr. Scott Burns. Uh, Mr. Burns serves as the Executive Director of the National District Attorneys Association. His job is to make sure that Congress hears the perspective of prosecutors as they're taking up various criminal justice issues, such as changes in sentencing laws. Uh, before joining the District Attorneys Association, Mr. Burns served in the White House Office of National uh, Drug Control Policy, uh, uh, serving as Deputy Director for State and Local and Tribal Affairs. He served in that capacity between 2002 and 2009. Before that, he served for more than 16 years as the elected County Attorney and Chief Prosecutor in Iron County, Utah. So he has extensive experience in law enforcement and in the area of civil asset forfeiture. Uh, would you please uh, welcome Mr. Scott Burns. Thank you, and thank Cato and fellow uh, panelists. Um, it's an honor and it's a privilege to be here, and I suppose the role that I will play uh, is to try and bring some real-life, real-world texture uh, to this issue. Uh, you have to appreciate, first and foremost, that 80 percent uh, of all prosecutors in this country, of all district attorney's offices, are from small towns and cities. 
with five or less prosecutors. That's 80 percent. So if you define the world as, in, in the prosecutorial sense, as 80 percent being small cities and towns and 20 percent being uh, major cities, I think it gives you uh, some idea of, of how this issue certainly would be scrutinized uh, if, this is, if this is happening, these abuses are happening on a large scale. Because uh, sheriffs have to get elected. Prosecutors have to get elected. Chiefs of police serve at the pleasure of the mayor and, and the city council. And if there is widespread abuse with respect to uh, the implementation and enforcement of law to include civil forfeitures, uh, this system of justice we have in this great country works because they're no longer the sheriff and they're no longer the prosecutor and they're no longer the chief of police. Uh, I guess the debate should be, and maybe it is framed uh, by Scott's uh, uh, concluding statements, that we should abolish civil forfeiture. If that's what we want to do, then there is a process for that uh, in our system. But uh, to date, the citizenry have found that it is a useful tool, and it's a tool because it is part of punishment. Now, I'll tell you uh, civil forfeiture from Scott Burns's perspective, and as I uh, enforced it over 16 years, and that was there had to be some rational relationship between what I seized on behalf of the people, the government, uh, and uh, the criminal behavior. Uh, there are wild stories out there about, uh, did you hear the one where a guy got arrested for a joint of marijuana and they took his entire ranch? D did you hear the one about uh, the person that had a small amount of uh, cocaine in the car and they seized a $100,000 Bentley. Did you hear that one? Uh, and in 2000, I was part of that debate in Utah. We couldn't find those cases. We couldn't. But I could take you to my town where a man was what I described as the Pony Express uh, delivery station and processing plant where for about six years uh, on a weekly basis he would get literally hundreds and hundreds of pounds of marijuana. His entire house was sealed off. His job was to cut it, to make it clean, to package it, to weigh it, and then other people would pick it up and distribute it across the country. How do we know that? He kept copious notes, copious records. He made millions and millions of dollars. So one day when he was a little too high and a police officer, Rulin Hardy, was coming off duty, coming out of a, a, a parking lot, this guy almost sideswiped him. Rulin had hadn't put his son in the seatbelt yet, so his son flew over and hit him. So he followed this uh, person to his house, knocked on the door. He opened the door, overcome by a tremendous odor of marijuana, came back, called me, talked to some neighbors. Guy never comes out, uh, a whole bunch of probable cause. Uh, judge signed a search warrant, and inside we found over 1,000 pounds of marijuana being processed. We found the records that he'd been doing this for months and months. And uh, we found a large amount of money. It seems like it was ninety or 100000 Now, to me, if he has the audacity to come into my town uh, from California, I believe, set up shop in a neighborhood where uh, good citizens live and children go to school and people pay taxes, if he has the audacity to engage in a major criminal uh, enterprise supplying uh, contraband and illegal drugs to major cities across this country, uh, I have the audacity to take his house and to take his car and to take his money and, and sell it and use that, uh, the proceeds of that, uh, as, as has been discussed, for law enforcement purposes. I'll tell you what we did in my county the 16 years I was there. The first thing we funded was prevention and education programs for children. That's where that money went. We also funded in several counties and in every school the D.A.R.E. program. You all remember back in the 80s and 90s when D.A.R.E. was uh, uh, the program uh, supported to try and prevent uh, young people from engaging and using 
uh, illegal substances. Uh, so that's what we did with it. And sometimes, you know, the, 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 the details are what, what get mixed up and what people don't uh, uh, research closely enough. In 2000, when the law was passed, it did say that funds that were forfeited uh, would go to the school district. Uh, but what you didn't hear is that what's left over goes to the school district because that money was made available to the defendant and his defense attorney to use in the defense of his criminal case and, and, in, until the case had concluded and then what was left would go uh, into the school district. Well, if uh, I seize $120,000 and you're my defense attorney uh, and we can use that money in my defense, it's not beyond belief and I'm, most defense attorneys are, are very honorable, but the 120000 just seemed to go really quick, uh, uh, and there was never anything left to be forfeited uh, at the end of the criminal proceeding. We saw it as a major flaw. We call it the defense attorney's civil forfeiture boondog. Uh, that's, that, that's how it, it ended up uh, uh, working. Um, with respect to equitable sharing, it's not just a uh, billion dollars that the federal government has and said, let's give you this much and you this much and you this much. Again, back to the real world, if we are working on, uh, I'll give you one, another one, uh, two Marines, African-American from California, Camp Pendleton, in a rider truck, the truck rolls uh, on I-15 on a snowy night, law enforcement show up. Uh, they're not hurt bad. They try and uh, uh, get the truck turned back over. They find out that they can't. A deputy looked over the fence and saw tracks in the snow, found a box. The box had 40 kilos of cocaine in it. Now, the record amount in Utah at that time was about 400 kilos. By the time we got done searching uh, the rider van, there were over 1,000 kilos of cocaine. Uh, that's a lot of cocaine. It was headed for Teterboro, New Jersey. They agreed to cooperate. They said that they were to be met by Colombians in a specific parking lot. Uh, they were to be paid, I think it was 180000 each. And there's also a large amount of cash in the Ryder van. Uh, they agreed. They cooperated. We went with them to Teterboro. I think seven Colombians were arrested. They had large amounts of cash on them as well. Uh, the investigation was led by the DEA. So when it was all said and done, uh, over 1,000 kilos was taken off the street. And let's say three or $400,000 is sitting there on the table. Uh, you can't just give it to somebody in Nebraska or somebody in California. What happens in the real world is the DEA will sit down with my state and local folks who were also involved in the investigation that found the cocaine, that my office that uh, uh, made the, the uh, plea agreement with the defendants with respect to delivering it. And so the time and the energy and the amount of effort that went into making that particular case uh, is, is how we determine uh, equitable sharing. Um, I guess uh, the, the point that I would make, and I'll leave more time, I think, for questions than, than listening to me talk, uh, most prosecutors that I know, and I, I know a lot of them, there are 39,000 in this country, uh, take an oath to do the right thing, uh, to be ethical and to be honest. And um, when they engage in civil forfeiture actions, uh, I, I, it's almost offensive to say that they have some ulterior motive of, of seizing these funds because uh, they're going to have a nicer office. That, that's really not how it works. It, it, it is a penalty that the federal government and that most states have determined is appropriate in the appropriate uh, case. As far as empirical uh, data, and, and, and I'm fascinated to see 
um, you know, who got what grades. I'm always skeptical because I always get a C or a D, and I don't know who the teacher was or what they were grading on. But if these are civil cases filed in real courts across the United States of America, uh, I, I think uh, with the appropriate uh, funding and and uh, motivation, we can find all of the civil cases that have been filed in, in a particular period of time, find out what the facts were with respect to why it's State of Utah versus $9,000, uh, and, and come up state by state with some real-life uh, uh, view of whether or not the process is being uh, abused or not. So again, uh, thank you for allowing me to to uh, be here today and, and maybe provide a little different perspective than those that simply want to abolish uh, civil forfeiture. Okay, what we're going to do now is have a very brief uh, second round where we're going to give the authors an opportunity to respond to what Mr. Burns has said. Very brief, about three minutes each, and then we're going to take your questions. Scott? Just, uh, just real quickly, um, I mean, I think Mr. Burns had said uh, something that at least the lawyers in the uh, in the audience understood when he said, well, under civil forfeiture law, there has to be a rational relationship between uh, the property that was seized and the criminal offense. Well, that's really the lowest standard under uh, the law, the rational basis test, which is much higher can than guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think it's, it's indicative of um, the attitude, unfortunately, in the courts and in many legislatures of property rights being a poor relation uh, in, uh, in relationship to other constitutional uh, rights. If the government takes away your life or your liberty, then uh, you're, uh, you're courted higher. Uh, the government must meet a higher burden. But if it's only property, then they just have to meet this lower standard of preponderance of the evidence or showing some rational uh, relationship. Um, also, uh, Mr. Burns mentioned the, the person in Utah that was growing uh, marijuana and receiving a lot of money uh, from it. Leaving aside your, what you think about, about the drug war, is that if the person uh, is arrested, he's convicted of uh, drug dealing, and the government is able to show that the reason why he has ninety or $100,000 in his property, is be, uh, in his house, is because he was selling uh, drugs and receiving those benefits, then the government would be able to forfeit those proceeds in the same way that the government would be able to forfeit the property of Bernie Madoff, which you can show that all of his property was obtained from defrauding uh, his investors. You obviously don't want to get into a situation where uh, people who are convicted of crimes and uh, thieves and so forth are able to benefit from their illicit activities. So um, criminal forfeiture, although it certainly can be abused, I think most people recognize as as legitimate. Um, and the last point I'll make um, is how forfeitures really play out, and I've been reviewing a lot of a lot of these cases. Is that it's typically not the person who has ninety thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars. It's oftentimes the person that has twelve hundred dollars, that has thirty five hundred dollars, that owns a car that might be used. Uh, the government files a forfeiture action against the property. And then, as was mentioned in the law under, in most states, the burden is then on the property owner to try to get the property back. It's in a legal system that the property owner doesn't understand. They typically have to hire a lawyer to work their way through uh, this system. Uh, the person that we're representing in a case we're involved in in Texas owned a uh, Chevy Silverado truck 
that he had uh, sold to a person. The person was making payments on it. Our client had held on to the title. The person was not done making the payments, still owed several thousand dollars on the piece of property. The person was arrested for DUI. The property was seized for forfeiture. Um, it's a 2004 Chevy Silverado, and then the burden was on our client to try to get it back. The government filed extensive discovery on our client, for instance, which asked him what was the nature of his relationship with the person he sold the car to. Was he aware that the person had been arrested for DUI before? Please provide us with all your tax records for the past three years, all of your canceled checks, all of your personal and business records for the past three years. A property owner is put into a position of saying, you know what, the truck's only probably worth a couple thousand dollars right now. It's only $1,500 or so, $1,800. I don't have the time, I don't have the money to fight back against this. And remember, under civil forfeiture, if you don't challenge the forfeiture, if you don't do it within the requisite period of time, the government simply wins by default. It's a civil action. If you don't defend against it, the government uh, can enter a a default judgment and be able to keep the truck, be able to keep uh, uh, the currency without ever ultimately having uh, having to prove it. And unfortunately, in the real world, that's too often how civil forfeiture uh, cases are played out. If you've got a big-time drug dealer and somebody who's got a lot of money on them, they're going to try to figure out a way maybe to fight it, maybe to cut a deal, maybe to use it to uh, in, their, in their plea bargaining uh, negotiations. But it too often affects folks that have a small amount of property or a small amount of cash at stake. Okay, Dr. Williams? Well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, Most forfeitures, based on um, the research that we did, most forfeitures are for little amounts of money, a couple of thousand dollars here, a couple of thousand dollars there, and they're not tied into criminal enterprises that you typically um, hear um, told. Also, um, a majority of the individuals who were caught up in these civil forfeiture actions aren't even arrested uh, for any of the crimes that they are alleged to have committed, much less convicted. And so... um, to call it punishment is something that um, maybe is a misnomer because these, these individuals aren't being uh, prosecuted in criminal court for any underlying criminal actions. So. Okay, thank you. We're going to open it up and take your questions now. I have three requests. When I call on you, wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question, and please identify yourself in any affiliation that you may have. Yes, ma'am. Hi, um, I'm an intern at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and um, a question for you, Mr. Bullock. Um, I know you mentioned how uh, civil forfeiture is mainly concentrated among low-income cases. Do you have any uh, say into how civil rights plays into that? Is civil forfeiture focused on particular races or uh, more gender-related? Do you have any ideas on that? Well, I don't know of any specific studies uh, that, that show that. I know the ACLU is looking into this, and um, and it's not surprising that you know a disproportionate amount of folks that are affected by this are poor folks, oftentimes uh, minority folks that uh, might have reasons to be uh, to be carrying. Um, a cash on them, uh, an inability to get bank accounts, not having the right paperwork and so forth. Uh, that typically applies oftentimes to uh, minorities, to poor uh, individuals.
individuals and uh, and those folks uh, face uh, forfeiture. Actually, in my review of of a lot of forfeiture cases, um, I don't want to say a majority because I don't I don't know for sure, but it seems like the focus now is on currency, uh, on cash. Uh, and um, and taking away cash from uh, from people, even if, for instance, drugs might not be found in the car or or on on uh, a person. So, um, as I said, I don't know of any specific studies that that show that empirically, um, but it it does um, fall hardest on folks that have uh, the the fewest amount of means to uh, uh, to fight back. Roger. I think you turned – okay, it's on now. I'm the aforementioned Roger Pilon here at Cato, and I want to direct my question to Mr. Burns. You began your remarks uh, by discounting the parade of horribles that one often hears. Um, In the Hyde book that we published, you will find such a parade, and it's well documented. For example, you had sheriffs in Volusia County, Florida – this was a case that 60 Minutes uh, featured, who were stopping cars, not going north, carrying drugs on Route I-95, but going south and seizing anything over $100 that their owners had in their possession on the theory that this was money that was going to be used for drug purchases in Florida. In D.C., you had a case where a grandson came from next door to his grandmother's home, consummated a drug deal on the phone in the basement. She knew nothing about it. She lost her house because it facilitated a a crime. You have cases where apartment owners, the landlords, uh, have the allegation is not done enough to keep drug dealing off their premises and they lose their entire apartment building, their motel, whatever the case may be. I could go on and on. I want to ask you about the rationale for this kind of thing because you spoke primarily about criminal forfeiture and Scott is absolutely right. We're dealing here today with civil forfeiture. And you, the rationale for that, you said, was to punish. Punishment is a criminal sanction. It's not a civil sanction. In fact, what you've got as a rationale that we heard from you is this is a useful tool. Well, of course, there are thousands of useful tools, many of which are unconstitutional or otherwise illegal. What's the rationale for holding the property guilty? Because that is the theory of the matter. How can property be guilty? Well, that, that's an argument you should take to uh, the United States Congress. And but I've taken it to you because you're defending this. I'll give you my rationale. Uh, I know nothing about this Texas case, nothing. But I find it hard to believe that somebody got pulled over for a DUI and then someone else's truck was seized. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, that it wasn't his first DUI. I'm going to guess that. Uh, I'm going to guess that uh, he knew and law enforcement knew that he liked to drive drunk. And those of us in the criminal justice system don't want our wives, our husbands, our children hit head on by a drunk. So we take their truck. What's also uh, very, very common is people who insist on engaging in criminal behavior put it in someone else's name. Now, to answer the, the, the second part of your question, in 16 years, and I did a lot of them, I never uh, forfeited anyone's property that it was not in connection with a criminal case. Never. 
uh, unless there was some nexus to criminal activity. On two or three occasions, and we had a lot of uh, uh, mules coming from Mexico that would deliver marijuana in large quantities uh, throughout, you know, in our case, uh, the West and the Midwest, and we would catch them with large amounts of marijuana coming, and then sometimes we would catch them with large amounts of cash going back. If they had sufficient cash, they bailed out, uh, then we would file a civil action, State of Utah versus $470,000, but we couldn't find that defendant to come back and one face uh, criminal charges because he went back to Mexico, and here we have $470,000. But to, to, to make people believe that law enforcement and prosecutors across the country are pulling people over and taking their money and, and simply driving away, uh, uh, it's, it's just not true. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question, because you did say, you know, you related some anecdotes, and then you said you and your colleagues had looked for the cases and you couldn't find them. Um, did you look at the Cato Institute book? Did you find anything in there that was incorrect? Did you look at the Institute for Justice's new report and find anything in there about the, the abuses that they highlight, and did you find that they were incorrect or inaccurate? Uh, not, not I'm speaking from my experience in my 16 years as a district attorney, and I'm sure, I don't know how thick it is, but with uh, 700,000 law enforcement officers, 39,000 prosecutors, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases, you can find bad police officers in Florida and any state, uh, bad prosecutors, bad defense attorneys. I get called all the time by uh, the media, uh, and they say, this prosecutor withheld evidence. Uh, and I say that is the most shameful part of what we do. Uh, and it has to be rectified. We have to fix that. But you know what? Sometimes journalists just make stuff up. That guy in New York, he made up stories. That guy in Boston got away a lot of years. Uh, they just make stuff up and print it. Now, do I think all journalists just make stuff up, uh, including you? No, I don't. But to pick out some... Uh, silly, exaggerated uh, anomaly of what is otherwise a great system of criminal justice and hold it up and say this is what they all do, uh, uh, that's unfair. We're not saying that's what they all do. Uh, I, I think the stories, as, as Tim and Roger uh, pointed out, speak for themselves. They are well documented. I don't know of anybody who's challenged the information that we have in our reporter that was in the Henry Henry Hyde book. And I'm certainly not saying that um, that all police and prosecutors engage in in this sort of behavior. Um, but it's not the rogue police or policeman or prosecutor that I had mentioned. Um, and it's not withholding evidence that something along those lines because that's clearly illegal. The problem with civil forfeiture laws is that it is legal to engage in this type of behavior. It is legal to focus your efforts on getting money that's coming back into southern Florida as opposed to going out, the drugs that are going out into the rest of the, of the country. And so you have this incentive structure in place that under the law now is acceptable and you have police officers and prosecutors responding uh, accordingly, and you get these uh, terrible examples of, uh, of abuse, and even where people are losing their property without being convicted of a crime, because that's not really an abuse under civil forfeiture laws. It's permissible because of the law itself, and that's why we're advocating changing the law. We're litigating to change the law, and we're also advocating that legislatures step up and change the law as well. Yes, sir. Over there. Mr. Keene. Hi, I'm, I'm Dave Keene with the American Conservative Union. And since we've dealt with anecdotal stories here, 
I'd like to go to Mr. Burns and say, first of all, I don't think that anyone in this uh, in this audience doesn't have anything but the greatest respect both for the 700,000 law enforcement officers and the 39,000 district attorneys. You get that many people together, we can't even get 535 people up on the hill uh, to, uh, to obey all the rules. So there are bad actors in every profession. There are bad actors, and when incentives are wrong, things happen that you don't want to happen. But having said that, I want to go to your anecdote. I assume uh, that, uh, that Scott was right, that you were talking about a criminal asset forfeiture, that you convicted this drug dealer and took his assets. But since we're talking about civil asset forfeiture, my question is this. This fellow came in from California. Had he rented that house uh, from a landlord who, say, then went off to Florida, and while the landlord was in Florida, he converted it into a property that he used to cut the marijuana, under Utah's forfeiture statutes, could you or would you have seized that property regardless of the fact of whether the landlord had any knowledge of the criminal activity taking place on the property? That would be preposterous. But it's unless, done. Well, unless I could prove that whoever was in Florida uh, was engaged in the operation, and that would be very uh, easy to do. Uh, by Have he visited Utah? Have uh, transactions taken place? Is money going back and forth? Uh, look, my policy was we call it mom or dad's car uh, when in, in, in small communities, everybody kind of knows everybody. It's a town of 30,000 people, and there are a lot of towns of 30,000 and less across the country. People know each other. They worship together. They go to the store. Their kids are in school together. And the vast majority of prosecutors I know send mom a letter. Billy was picked up for the second time. Uh, he had uh, three ounces of marijuana, and he had some Lortab. I assume that came, you know, from from maybe a family member, because we know 78% of it does from the medicine cabinet at home. This is the second time. Uh, the car is under your name. You clearly know that he's using the car to facilitate crimes. Uh, we're not the parents, but if he gets caught in that car again with uh, controlled substances, we're going to seize the car. I've done that many, many times, as has a lot of prosecutors. Now, I'll throw it back at you. Is that fair or unfair to take mom or mom and dad's car when they've had ample notice that on two prior occasions their son is using it to, to uh, commit crimes? My question was not whether you would have seized that house. No, I would have to prove that the owner had some culpability, had some engagement or involvement. That, that, that's ridiculous for me to take somebody's house when they didn't know. Clearly. But only by a preponderance of the evidence, but I not beyond to, a reasonable doubt. Well, that's our civil system. I mean, now we're talking about changing laws to, to the weight of evidence. You know, do you want beyond a reasonable doubt in, in the civil courts? That's going to be a huge uh, change in, in, in jurisprudence in this country. Right here. All states do. Hi, I'm Neil Franklin um, from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and I've got uh, over 33 years in law enforcement and retired from the Maryland State Police in 1999. Spent most of my career commanding drug task forces in the state of Maryland, and we have many multi-jurisdictional task forces, which include the local prosecutor and usually a representative from the feds. And we have thousands of good cops. But unfortunately, what we have here 
are two bad policies married, joined at the hip in holy matrimony. And when I say two good, I mean two bad policies, the one that we're talking about here as it relates to civil uh, forfeiture, and the other one is war on drugs, our policies as it relates to the drug war. We, um, because of these two policies, it makes it very easy for law enforcement to operate within the confines of the law to do exactly what you two are saying. Most of these cases are the low amounts of cash. They are the bundles of cash where a drug dog alerts on a, and you can pull money right out of your pocket, and a drug dog will alert on most cash. We in law enforcement then seize that money. It could be a hundred bucks, it could be a thousand dollars, it could be thirty thousand dollars. And we place the burden upon the citizen to prove where they got the money from. Now I have no problem if it's the IRS doing that, but not local law enforcement. <clears throat> so many of these people can't afford whether it's the money to hire an attorney or the time off of work to go to bat to get what was seized from them in return. This is a huge problem in law enforcement. And when you have police officers having discussions about the car that they recently seized and who's going to drive it, within the next couple of months as the undercover, as their undercover car, that's a problem. And it happens all the time. Um, and I got a question here in a second, but I just wanted to lay the foundation from a boots on the ground perspective right up the road from where we're having this forum today. We need to change, we, we drastically need to change these laws as it relates to the, the um, equitable sharing, because the states are taking action somewhat in changing their policies, but the equitable sharing is very popular among law enforcement in the state of Maryland, and I can only speak to the state of Maryland. And we refer to it as, we're going to dag that, whatever the property is, because that's the form that's used, the federal form that's used to as the application to submit for it. The question I had, and I got so much more, but I'm going to let up here. The question I have, the Fourth Amendment, you know, is not just protection from unreasonable search, but from seizure. How is this allowed to happen? I don't understand. I mean, I'm not an attorney. I'm not an academic. I'm a cop. And I have always wondered how this has been permitted. And believe me, I'm one who's guilty of what you're talking about here today. And literally thousands of cases, seriously, thousands of cases being the commander of so many task forces. Okay. So that's my question. Under the Fourth Amendment, Scott, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with that is the fact that um, it's a civil proceeding. And the Fourth Amendment um, and, uh, and most other constitutional provisions um, do not apply. So, um, so the standards that are used uh, typically are, are, are not 
present. Uh, that's true. Now, the court has, in certain circumstances, said that if a forfeiture, for instance, is punitive enough in nature, it could violate the Eighth Amendment, uh, the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment, uh, for instance, if if it is really shown that it is punitive in nature. But that's under pretty limited a pretty limited set of circumstances, and most provisions of uh, of the Bill of Rights uh, simply don't apply because you don't have uh, constitutional rights typically um, in in civil in a civil setting. Mr. Burns, what about equitable sharing? I mean, this is where, you know, the officials in the state legislature say, Maryland, say, when our police seize property, we do not want them to keep it themselves. We want it going into the general fund. And the gist of equitable sharing, as I understand it, is that the state police are now, they call in the feds to make it a federal seizure, and then the feds kick back 80% of it back to the state and local police kind of trying to get around the state rules. Is equitable sharing one of these legal changes that, that you would uh, support abolishing? I, I don't think so because, uh, again, when you use words like kickback and perverse and bizarre and, you know, that's our system that's in place has been enacted. Right, we're talking our, about whether that should be changed, though. Uh, no, because the, I mean, again, if you can show me the abuses, but the idea is uh, that the feds, federal law enforcement and state and local law enforcement. I was over the HIDA program. It was a $230 million program. And what the HIDA program did is bring together federal, state, and local. And you have a big one in Baltimore and in every major city uh, in the country. And the whole purpose is that everybody cooperates, everybody works together, everybody shares their intelligence, so you don't have cops shooting cops or buying from cops. Uh, That's the idea. So you're talking about uh, narcotics cases. Very rare that you're going to have a case, a big case, that doesn't involve the cooperation of federal and state. So I I don't find what's so uh, offensive about them then sharing when they take $180,000 from a cocaine dealer. Yes, sir. Um, Robert Gass from The Economist magazine. Um, I have a question for Mr. Burns. Um, I was wondering, assuming that um, you know, civil forfeiture is an appropriate punishment and all that kind of thing. What, what's the argument against removing the potential conflict of interest that you have when the proceeds go to the people who are making the calls? I mean, why not put all the money into the federal into sorry into the general general state fund? Well, I think uh, for the very reasons that law enforcement go to their state legislatures and have the political clout to make sure that the laws are consistent with. Uh, protecting uh, the process that, that they have in place. In other words, uh, if law enforcement uh, needs more uh, uh, equipment, they need more uh, manpower, woman power, they uh, do not receive uh, appropriate funds from the, from the city council or the county commission or the state, they believe that their hard work and efforts in fighting crime uh, are going to pay for uh, roads. Well, look, the point being that if if you have criminal behavior and activity, and I'm still not going to concede that we've got people out there just seizing property and filing civil uh, uh, actions, if, if we have proceeds that uh, are the result of the, the work of the prosecutor's office and law enforcement, 
Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you another thing. A lot of uh, jurisdictions take into account how much is going to be seized by lowering the budgets of sheriff's departments and, and city police departments and prosecutors' offices. Where should it go? Should, should it go to roads? Should, it, should we send it to the... I'm not sure you've really answered why the money has to be earmarked for police. If it's legitimate to seize it, why, why, why does the money have to go to police? It doesn't have to. It does not have to. But the legislatures in the majority of states have said, that's a good thing. It should go to them. And that's kind of how our system works. Okay. I mean, do you agree with that idea? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, again, I'll tell you, I oversaw a task force. At one point, we probably had over a million dollars. If that would have gone to my county commission, we would not have funded drug prevention programs in the schools. We would not uh, have funded uh, officer uh, prevention uh, uh, programs that we had in three separate counties. They, they, they weren't going to pay for it. And those of us that had to look at the people enslaved to the disease of addiction and kids that went home whose parents were stoned and high, we thought, you know what? This would be a good use of that money. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. This is a question for Professor Williams, and I guess Mr. Burns, I'm a professionally trained clinician, so. Could you identify I, uh, yourself? In pardon a, me? Identify yourself and your affiliation? Oh, on myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what's confusing here for me as a, is the civil uh, actions as opposed to the criminal actions for seizure. I see eminent domain, and that's happened a lot, and it's going to be happening more probably, as a civil procedure and forfeiture. But I hear from Mr. Burns and also all of you who've asked questions and all, we're talking more about criminal actions, having worked as a mental health clinician provider and what have you, when money, the I think you need to clarify and how is this going to be done to separate the civil forfeiture forfeiture from the criminal. When money goes back to the police department or the city, I have problems with it going into the general fund because then all those local city, state, and federal politicians get their hot little hands in that general fund, and it's not earmarked to go where it should go so that at the end of the month, Mr. Police Officer in Maryland and I'm from Baltimore originally, you've got to make your quote on parking tickets. Where's that money going back into? The police department. So how do you clarify or where will you draw the line between a civil forfeiture versus all I hear is criminal because if you're going to seize my car because you suspect or I'm high or I'm drunk driving and you find something, that's a criminal offense as opposed okay. to Dr. a Williams, civil one. Dr. Williams, do you want to take that Thank one? You. Um, with regard to civil forfeiture, police only have to show that there's some connection to criminal activity. And it's not necessarily drug crimes. It could be any criminal activity. And once that occurs on the street, okay, if, you, if a police officer pulls you over for speeding and suggests that, you know, some sort of criminal activity is alleged, at that point in time, the police can seize that money, seize your property, and then instigate a civil forfeiture proceeding in the courts without having to arrest you, charge you with that underlying criminal activity, and send you to prosecution in criminal court. You are not convicted 
necessarily in a civil forfeiture action. You are not sentenced to prison. You don't go to jail. You don't get probation. And so essentially what we're talking about is if police are allowed to do this, take your funds and then send you on your merry way, um, what is going you know, where is the where is the punishment aspect? I mean, if these individuals truly are engaged in criminal activity, then why not arrest them? Why not adjudicate them in criminal court? Why not then instigate a criminal forfeiture action after they've been convicted, which will make it essentially, you know, a given that they're going to, to forfeit those funds? It is it is a supposed criminal act. If it's the criminal act, Mr. Burns, that's going to have me picked up, and then maybe you want to take away my property, and I, I, I know eminent domain is what I think of when you talk about civil forfeitures. But if you're going to pick me up for a criminal act first and prosecute me for whatever, then you're going to take away whatever I have for whatever criminal act I did, whatever that may be, and then hopefully someone's going to come and bail me out and make it a civil this is a, isn't this backwards? I think, I mean, I have to make this point as clear as I can. In many states, they, because it's in rem jurisdiction over a thing, over money, over a car, over a house, it has to be adjudicated in a civil court. I, I cannot imagine, and I'm waiting for the, the answer of where I just went over to your house. You had $10,000, and you know what? You look pretty shady to me. And file an action against $10,000 and make you come to court to prove it. I, I just I can't imagine that. And I can speak for 39,000 prosecutors and 700,000 cops who would say, if you're pulling people over for speeding, searching the car, taking all of their money, and say, now, come prove it's yours, that is ridiculous. It, it can't, it, it can't it's, And it's unlawful. It, it's it's illegal. Good, 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 good. Well, the statutes for, for civil forfeiture have fewer due process protections, lower standards of proof. I mean, the, the standard of proof for most civil actions is preponderance of the evidence. How does that explain 14 states having a probable cause standard for forfeiture? That is not that doesn't even meet the threshold of standard of proof for a, for a normal regular civil action, and so it, it just makes it easier we 're not saying that police are abusing it we 're just saying that the language that is in place allows police should they wish to if they have the intent to um, engage in these civil actions and but, but absent any type of criminal prosecution but you got to get the judges and the and the prosecutors in on this gig as well. Because, you know, we elect and or appoint, I hope, reasonable men and women that take the bench and, you know. In, in, in some types of, of uh, forfeiture actions called administrative forfeitures, the judge is not involved. If individuals do not come forward to contest um, the seizure of the property, then it's the prosecutor and the seizing agency who decides if the burden of proof is met to forfeit those assets. It's like any civil proceeding. If I get sued and don't show up. I may have never been to Nebraska. And that's the problem of having it in civil court. 
Uh, and and you can, for instance, as, as you were mentioning, too, with the amount of drugs that are on currency today. If you find somebody, if you pull somebody over, for instance, for um, not having, um, you know, their, their back tail light is out, and you find a certain amount of cash, well, you could accuse, and there's a hit on the on the currency for uh, for drugs. That you could accuse the person of being a drug dealer, seize the cash, or engaging in this is a very broad uh, offense, and I've seen it many times in forfeiture actions money laundering. The suspicion could be that you were engaged in money laundering. That's why you have $4,000 on you, maybe combined with a, with a hit on it, and that's enough to justify the seizure. And then once it's seized, then the government files a forfeiture action against your property. And then, as we mentioned in document in the report, in most of those places, the burden then switches to the property owner to try to get the property back through a civil proceeding, through going through discovery, through hiring an attorney, through showing up in court. And again, this gets very time-consuming and very expensive very quickly. Yes, ma'am. Wait just a second. Let our microphone get to you so we can hear your question. Thanks very much. I'm Cynthia Butler. I'm an attorney. And um, I was just curious. Usually the pushback for any um, fighting abuses and these sorts of things comes in, in the form of litigation of either, you know, malicious prosecutions or wrong, certain wrongful torts of wrongful seizures or things like that. So has there been that sort of litigation with significant enough punitive damages to serve as deterrence for abuses at all? And is there any pushback from the litigation angle that would suggest that, that, um, that you wouldn't need to amend these statutes or abolish these statutes, but, but that the litigation punitive damage angle might help? Well, unfortunately, there have been some cases. There have been – Texas is very aggressive in using its civil forfeiture laws. There is now a civil uh, rights action in um, Tenaha, uh, 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 Texas now, that challenged a lot of the practices of – we were talking about seizing, seizing cash from, uh, from motorists, oftentimes uh, poor individuals, minority folks. Uh, that case is still, is still pending. Uh, what we are challenging in our uh, litigation, what we're focusing on, is not only the lack of protection for innocent owners, but also uh, this uh, police and prosecutors being paid on commission. Uh, we think that that violates uh, the due process clause of the U.S. Constitution and the uh, and, and state constitutions uh, as well, um, because you should not give the people who are out there enforcing the law a direct financial incentive to go out and benefit from uh, these uh, these forfeitures. Uh, there's a case in um, uh, from the Supreme Court uh, in 19. 19- 80 that upheld an incentive structure for the Department of Labor, whereby the prosecutors there were reimbursed for the expenses of the prosecution. And the Supreme Court said, well, that's okay because they're not really profiting from this. They're just getting paid for their, for their prosecutorial expenses. And the court then went on to say, but for instance, if this was a large amount of money, if they were able to benefit from this without limitation, then this would raise serious due process concerns. And that is a description of most forfeiture laws. Uh, it's not tied to the expenses of the case. Uh, the more property that police and prosecutors are able to forfeit, the more their offices uh, their offices benefit. So that is hopefully something that we'll be able to change uh, through litigation. That's the least likely thing that is going to change through the legislative uh, process, and that's the thing, as I had mentioned, was not changed, unfortunately, under under federal law. Uh, but the problem with you know doing civil rights claims and that sort of thing is that typically you have to show the government violated a clearly established constitutional right. 
um, and under the law in most of uh, uh, most states, um, it is legal to take property from folks who were not been charged with a, uh, convicted of a crime, let alone charged with a crime. So it would be difficult to win those punitive damages or to prevail in in uh, in these civil rights types of lawsuits. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but everybody here is invited to the luncheon we'll be having upstairs. Uh, please thank our panelists for a great discussion. Thank you.